Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick. With a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research, and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we explore the psychology behind making better decisions, examine the interconnectedness of many different forms of knowledge, and discuss a number of key concepts to help you better understand the mathematics of misjudgment with Michael J. Mobison. Because the science of success keeps on growing with more than 350,000 downloads hitting the front page of New and Noteworthy and much more, I want to offer something special to my listeners. I am giving away a $100 Amazon gift card to one lucky listener. We gave away one last week and we give one away every single month. All you have to do to be entered to win this $100 Amazon gift card is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Again, that's SMARTER to 44222 to be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. And if you want to win 10 extra entries into the giveaway, all you have to do is leave us a positive review on iTunes and send me an email with a screenshot of that review. Send the email to matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. In our last episode, we interviewed Shane Parrish. We discussed mental models, cognitive biases, went deep on decision-making and how to improve and build a smarter decision-making framework, and we looked at a number of key mental models that you can add to your mental toolbox. If you want to dramatically improve your decision-making right now, listen to that episode. Today, we have another awesome guest on the show, Michael Mobison. 
Michael is the head of global financial strategies at Credit Suisse. He is one of my favorite authors and the author of three books, including More Than You Know, Finding Financial Wisdom in Unconventional Places, which was named one of the 100 best business books of all time. Michael also serves as an adjunct professor of finance at Columbia Business School and is an expert in decision-making, behavioral psychology, and all of those fields applied to the financial markets especially. Michael, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks, Matt. Great to be with you today. Well, we are super excited to have you on here. So to kind of kick things off and get started, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, for, for listeners who might not be familiar with some of your books, tell us a little bit about your background and how did you become so fascinated with kind of the psychological aspects of human decision-making, uh, you know, specifically within the context of investing, which you're obviously an expert at, but also, you know, even more broadly. You know, Matt, I think part of it is you mentioned my uh, association with Columbia Business School, and I started teaching there in the early 1990s. And I was thinking a lot about what I was talking about with the students, effectively giving them tools to try to make them successful investors and sort of had this growing feeling that what made for great investing had less to do with uh, the tools, you know, accounting and financial statement analysis and valuation, although those things are obviously really important, and much more to do with uh, decision-making and temperament, and especially under, uh, you know, stressful situations. So probably in the uh, mid-1990s, I started to just open up my reading uh, quite a bit, a lot more science a lot more in the world of psychology and sort of, you know, being exposed to this world is this sort of lightning bolt recognition that probably what makes for great, not just great investors, but really great in any field is awareness of a lot of these psychological factors and improve the quality of decision. So it sort of changed my whole tenor, re- recognizing that a lot of things we teach, for example, in business schools or actually any kind of school are just the ante to the game, but the real success has to do with this whole other field of decision making. So, that, you know, that was sort of my my epiphany was that recognition of of where value comes from. The other thing I'll just mention is I was reading widely. Uh, you know, I was one of those guys that was, you know, I'd read something, I'd be like, oh, here's a connection to this or here's a connection to that. And just sort of this recognition that we live in an extremely rich world and uh, that there are a lot of interesting connections between different things that may not be superficially obvious, but that I think can really make, um, that can be some fascinating connections and I think really helpful connections to allow people to, to think about the world more effectively. And that's essentially the concept of kind of the idea of multidisciplinary thinking that Charlie Munger is a huge proponent of, and I know you're a huge proponent of, um, and something actually we touched on a little bit with one of our previous guests, Shane Parrish of Farnham Street. Can you explain a little bit more about, you know, or maybe even provide some examples of kind of how different disciplines can impact each other or, you know, how maybe psychology uh, can underpin finance or, or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the way I like to think about this is that uh, it's like a toolbox, the metaphor of a toolbox, right? And, you know, you might have the best hammer or best screwdriver of anybody, but, you know, what you really want to do when you're thinking about the world is to have the right tool to apply the right, to the right problem. And so I think the Munger approach, and I do, I give huge credit, my thinking, to Charlie Munger, who I think is the most articulate I'd also mention another book, which many of your listeners may be aware of, uh, by E.O. Wilson called Consilience. 
and and you know these ideas that many of the vexing problems in our world are at the intersection of disciplines and we need this sort of full toolbox to try to tackle them so to me this is uh the way to think about the world the other thing i'll just say is a, another quick comment is that we've made huge strides in science over the last, let's say, 400, 500 years through reductionism, which is to say basically breaking things down into fundamental components. And it's been extraordinary. And I think a lot of the things we take for granted in life advancements um, are the the result of that amazing work. But I think increasingly we're bumping into areas where uh, we're dealing with systems that are complex, where reductionism really doesn't work, where in a, in a very real sense, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And that requires a very different way of thinking about the world. Now, if you think about academia in general, there's, you know, you get paid for specialization, you get paid for being narrow, but a lot of the problems in the world are kind of going the opposite direction where it's important to think about things from different perspectives. So one example I would give you, and I think, um, is also a very powerful mental model in and of itself. And for me, was another big eye-opening moment. It's just thinking about markets as complex adaptive systems, the stock market, right? So if you say to an academic or a, specific, a really traditional economist, you know, how should we think about how people behave? They'll typically say, well, we've got these models of agents who are rational and they understand their different, you know, they have information that comes in and they understand their preferences and they have utility functions and then they make decisions on the basis of this. You know, we know we've known from the long for a long time that empirically that's not how the world works, right? And so that, that if you try to extrapolate that into a model of markets, it just doesn't fit the facts all that well. Complex adaptive systems, by contrast, come at the world as thinking about the interaction of heterogeneous parts or agents, right? And you could think about other examples like ants in an ant colony, right? Absolutely fascinating because the colony itself. Is almost an organism. It has a life cycle, and you know, uh, you know, uh, is sometimes aggressive, sometimes passive. But every individual ant, you know, is really basically clueless. They're sort of bumbling little agents within this total. So I think that's a much, much richer way. And by the way, co- your consciousness, for example, neurons in your brain. You can think about example after example. People that live in New York City are components of a complex system. And when you take that sort of set of tools and that way of thinking uh, to the world of markets. It just opens up, again, new ways of thinking about things, gives you good reason to understand why markets are generally hard to beat, but it also gives you some insight as to why markets go uh, periodically haywire. So to me, this whole mental models thing is just a really, really powerful way to think about the world. Now, let's talk about the pros and cons. The pros is I think that if you do understand big concepts from various disciplines, it gives you a huge leg up in life. The con is it requires constant, basically, reading and thinking and learning. So if you're going to get into this world, it ends up being sort of a, a commitment to perpetual learning. Now, that's not everybody's cup of tea, but if it is, I, I just think that that's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really fun, exciting, and I think ultimately a great way to, to find success. I love the the idea that sort of the the traditional education or business school or whatever it might be is sort of the ante to get into the game. But if you really want to win, if you really want to compete at the highest level, you need to have a much richer and much kind of deeper toolkit to really understand reality. 
Yeah, and I really, I really think that's the case. The other thing I'll just say is I, so that's certainly true. I also think that there are gaps now in uh, our education, especially, for example, uh, in high school and college students. You know, I'll give you one example, and I don't mean to, this is sort of a negative example, but I don't mean to be too negative, but one of my, one of my sons went to a really terrific high school, and they decided to develop a leadership center for the kids, which is great, right? And so they were working on things like communication, you know, cultural awareness, a lot of things you would say are really important. But what, what struck me as fascinating about it is there was actually no segment or module on uh, decision-making or on psychology. So, uh, you know, I went to the guy that ran the program and I said, you know, this is really interesting because at the end of the day, our, our future leaders are really people that need to be equipped in understanding how to make decisions, understanding being numerate, right? Understanding the scientific method and what science tells us. I mean, these are actually very essential uh, elements in the future. And, you know, the, the, we're, we're just we're basically not teaching those things. So, you know, that to me is another uh, area that we, we should be spending. And, and, and by the way, I'm, you know, I'm about to go back to one of my college reunions. And when I went to college, the kinds of things, the decision-making courses that are now sort of uh, much more common were, didn't exist at all. So if you're someone of my age and you're in your 40s or 50s, chances are you, you didn't have any access to it in school. So there's more of it now, but certainly not enough of it. Uh, in my opinion, so yeah, I think you have to you have to supplement a lot of what your uh, your curriculum has been in order to to become a a more a well-rounded individual. So, for somebody that's listening to this podcast, what do you think? What what are kind of some easy steps, or maybe some first steps they could take on the path towards starting to build this toolkit, or starting to maybe understand human decision making more effectively, or make better decisions? Yeah, Matt, and I think you know my my answer, which uh, is probably to start to read, whether you can read or certainly listen to um, you know listen to audio books or something. But there there are a handful of books that are probably get you off and running. You know, one book that I always loved, and I'm sure you're a fan of as well, is Bob Cialdini's book Influence: The Psychology of Persuasion. It's an easy book to read. It's got six big models about how you could influence people in their decision making, or you can also see or reflect how those things influence you in your decision making. So that's a great starting point. You know, another great one, of course, is Danny Kahneman's book Thinking Fast and Slow. It's probably a little bit more of a challenge, but so rich in terms of its content. So that would be another thing I would say is uh, people reading that. And just really that, I mean, just the de degree to which you're willing to wade into the, for example, the psychology literature is is fantastic. So that's one set of things. The second set of things is if you um, if you have an appetite to do so, it's really great to try to hang out with people who are different than you, right? And that might be, you know, if you're a finance person, hang out with artists or people who are into literature. Yeah, you know, there was some, there was a very famous essay many years ago about the two cultures, you know, sort of the literary culture and the scientific culture. And the argument was that these cultures couldn't really didn't meld with one another. And I think those people who really tried to reach out to understand different points of view, have diverse thoughts. I think that really it just forces you into uh, being actively open minded about the world, and just I think really gives you a leg up in a lot of circumstances. So. You know, that out of those, that's a gentle entry in, but probably the first thing I would say is, is to start to read some of these things and, and think about, be introspective about how, how they're influencing you or how, you're, you know, how your decision-making processes work. And then, uh, you know, just make an effort to, to reach out to people who are different. You know, um, is it Brian Grazer, the guy uh, who wrote a book on creativity recently? Do you know that book? I do not. The Hollywood guy. So the Hollywood guy. 
And um, we'll put it in the show it. notes. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. So we'll we'll track it down the exact book. But I think it's just called Creativity. And you know, he he had this sort of extraordinary story, which I absolutely love. And he said, you know, he just made a point is when he read an article. Now he's a pretty famous producer now, but you know, he read read an article about somebody. He would just say, I want to meet that person, and he would he would call them up like out of out of nowhere and say. I'd love to have a cup of coffee with you. Can we make that happen? You know, and he would, he'd be, he'd reach out to people that would take six months, 12 months, 18 months to, to schedule something. But he was just reaching, going all over the place. You know, he'd, one week he'd be talking to a lead athlete. Next week he'd be talking to an astronaut. Then he'd be talking to a Navy SEAL. And then he'd talk to a police commissioner. I mean, like these incredible, fascinating array of people. And he just made it part of what he was about. And I think he argues that really helped stoke his own personal creativity and, and mindset. That's fascinating. Um, and that, that makes me think of two kind of quick notes for people who are listening. One is we actually did a whole, we did a six part series called weapons of influence, where we basically on the podcast, where we basically broke down each of the major pillars of influence and kind of dove deep into the research studies and the findings behind it. So, uh, for people who want to kind of take that first step that Michael's recommending, that's a great way to get started. Um, and the other thing briefly, we also did a really cool episode recently on creativity. So to kind of drill into some of the, the, the neuroscience behind that and how to kind of spark your own creativity, uh, for people who are listening. Super cool. Super cool. So one of the things you touched on briefly was, uh, kind of the idea of being numerate and, and, you know, another way to, that I think Peter Bevelin called that in, in the book, seeking wisdom is sort of the physics and, and mathematics of misjudgment. And I know Munger did an amazing job in his speech about human misjudgment, kind of nailing all the different psychological factors. Um, but two of the things that I think that you've uh, done an incredible job of really studying and explaining, Michael, are kind of the concept of base rates and the concept of reversion to the mean. And I'd love to drill into, uh, you know, kind of talk about both of those. And I know there's a lot to unpack in, in each one of those, but, you know, in a way that we could kind of explain them to a layperson that's never heard of either of those concepts, why they're important and kind of what they are. Yeah. So great, great question. Um, the base rate is, um, it really comes from the work of uh, Kahneman and Tversky. So Danny Kahneman, Amos, Amos Tversky. And as they were examining how people well, it actually, the, the ideas precede that by many decades, but they sort of codified this to some degree. And the idea is that there are two ways of making forecasts of the world, what they call the inside versus the outside view. So the inside view, and Matt, this is how you and I typically operate, right? You know, if I give you a problem, you give me a problem. Our classic way to solve it is to gather a bunch of information, right? Combine it with our own inputs and then project into the future, right? So if I, you know, you go to a college student, you say, hey, when will you be done with your term paper? You know, so they sort of think about what their calendar looks like, how hard the paper is, and so forth, and they make some sort of projection, right? So that's the natural way to think. The outside view, by contrast, uh, or what we're calling the base rates, uh, says, you know what, I'm going to think about my problem as an instance of a larger reference class. Basically, in plain words, I'm going to ask the question, what happened when other people were in this situation? Right, and it's a very unnatural way to think for two reasons. Number one is you have to leave aside your own information, right? This cherished information that you have, and second is you have to find and ultimately appeal to this base rate, right? So, for example, in our term paper example, instead of saying, "Hey, when will you finish your term paper?" and, and the student thinking about their own schedule and the, and the difficulty of the paper, you basically ask a question of all the students that had a term paper due, you know, a certain day. When did they actually complete it, right? So it's a very different question. 
And it turns out that what we see in the decision-making literature is the introduction of base rates actually sharp, massively sharpens the quality of forecasts. So we've applied it very specifically for the, for example, in the world of business to things like sales growth rates for companies. So you might say, you know, hey, here's a company that has $10 billion of sales. What's the sales growth rate going to be for the next three years or five years or 10 years? So you could, you could model it again bottom-up, sort of say, oh, here's what they do, here's how many new units they'll sell, and so forth. Or you can, you can ask the question of companies of that same size, over time, what's the distribution of growth rate? So they're not mutually exclusive. Both of them go together, but, but that's the idea of base rates. And so once you start to think about base rates, you start to see them, you know, they're basically everywhere. Uh, but certainly realms like sports, realms like business, we have really good data on base rates, and I think they can be really, really helpful. Reversion to the mean is another concept that is really important and I think very actually quite tricky. So reversion to the mean formally says that outcomes that are far from average will be followed by outcomes with an expected value closer to the average. Right. And so the classic example of that is the, is heights of people, right? Heights of fathers and sons, for example, specifically. So, you know, what we know is that very tall fathers have tall sons but the heights of the sons are closer to the average of all the sons. And likewise, short fathers have short sons, but again, the heights of the, the sons are closer to the average. So, so there's this sort of squishing back toward the middle. Uh, so, so that's an effect that happens, right? And it's just a, a statistical artifact. And by the way, the, on the height thing, for instance, that sort of has to be true if you think about it for a second, because otherwise there'd be people walking around who are 20 feet tall, right? two, two feet tall, that doesn't happen, right? So here's an interesting way to think about the reversion to mean, uh, how powerful the force will be. So if the correlation from one event to the next event is basically zero, then you should expect very, very rapid reversion to the mean. Let me give you one really concrete example from the markets. Um, it turns out if you look at the Standard & Poor's 500, so the most popular index in the U.S., and you look at the results from year to year, so you take on x-axis T0, like what it did last year, then the next on the y-axis, T plus one, what it does in the subsequent year, and you plot that going back to the 1920s, the correlation is basically zero. In other words, what happened last year tells you absolutely nothing about what's going to happen the subsequent year. So as a result, the best estimate of what's going to happen next is some measure of the average, right? Reversion to the mean, the mean. And so your best estimate for the market is basically the historical average, right? On the other extreme, if the correlation is perfect, very high, you expect no reversion to the mean at all. So, you know, Matt, if you and I ran, to, ran a sprint against Usain Bolt, he's going to win, right? And we run again, he's going to win again, right? It's going to be perfectly correlated that he's going to win every single time, and there is no reversion to the mean. So how we finished in prior races or how he finished prior races doesn't really make a difference. He's going to win every single time. So, so this idea of reversion, I mean, you can think about how correlated outcomes are over time. That also gives you an idea of how rapidly that uh, the idea of reversion, I mean, takes effect. So super powerful, super important, and often really overlooked. Even, even people who do this for a living, for example, sports executives, somehow get tripped up and don't fully take into account uh, reversion to the mean. 
And one of the things that that I really struggled with, and I mean, I've read your your chapters on by the yeah, both a bunch of Kahneman's stuff over and over again. I've read your chapters in the Success Equation, you know, five or six times, trying to really drill that concept into my head. Is is the kind of relationship between correlation and reversion to the mean, and also you know, kind of going back to the simplest uh, example is flipping a coin, right? And, and when people think about reversion to the mean, sometimes people if you, if a coin comes up heads four times in a row people think oh i'm due a tails right but that's actually completely incorrect way to sort of think about and really understand how reversion to the mean actually functions yeah exactly and i think that look this is one of the reasons it's so challenging is because it's not that there's there's we have intuitions about how all this stuff works but you you know you if we want to be slightly more formal exactly what you said so when correlations are low Reversion to the mean is very, very powerful, right? And that's my stock market example. When correlations are very high, reversion to the mean is not a powerful force. In other words, what had happened before is, uh, for the most part, a pretty good estimate of what's going to happen next. And yeah, no, it's an, that, by the way, that little heuristic, that's one of our tools in our toolbox. That's a mental model, is an incredibly powerful mental model. And re- remarkably, very few people. Very few people sort of get it. The other thing, and you know, Kahneman talks about this, but one of the other reasons that reversion to the mean is difficult is because our minds are wired to seek causality, right? If I give you an effect, some sort of an outcome, your mind is going to try to come up with a cause to explain it. And reversion to the mean is a concept that really has no cause and effect. Uh, and I'll give you an example that I always find to be fascinating. It turns out, I mentioned before that the heights of fathers and sons, right, tall fathers have tall sons, but the heights of sons are closer to the average of all the sons. But it turns out, and I think this is somewhat counterintuitive, that if you plot the heights of the sons, it turns out very tall sons have tall fathers, but the heights of the fathers are closer to the average of all the fathers, right? And we know that sons don't cause fathers, right? right. Fathers can. Yeah. So, so like it gives you pause, right? You sort of say, so, so in other words, the reversion of the mean has no arrow of time and the notion of causality really doesn't apply. It's just, it applies anytime you have two series that are not perfectly correlated with one another, right? And by the way, the heights of fathers and sons, the correlation is almost exactly 0.5. So in other words, if you're six inches above average, the best estimate of your son's height would be three inches above average, right? Half the distance between your height and the height of all of everybody else. So interesting, right? So I applaud you for sort of going back to the concept. I did the same thing many, many times going back to it. And there's some other other people besides Kahneman who talked about it effectively. Um, I, I just think it's a really, um, it's a hard concept to get your head wrapped around. And, and it, it, it also is worthy of a lot of study. I think the trickiest part is kind of the the very counterintuitive notion that there's no cause and effect, right? That's what people think that it means that there's some kind of cause that it's going to ha- cause something to happen when in reality there's no error of time, there's no causality at all. Yeah, so so I would say Matt to be, you know, to be a little bit more careful about it. I you know, it doesn't mean the causality isn't part of it. It just doesn't require causality, right? Yeah, so that's words, more yeah, that's Yeah, and so way to so I, the example I give that also um uh, you know, even uh, well, I'll give you a quick story on this. I, I was presenting to it was actually an academic conference, and it was on behavioral strategy. Right, it's super interesting. So these are professors of strategy, corporate strategy, who have a behavioral bent. Right, super interesting topic. And uh, so I was doing a presentation a little bit on the luck and skill stuff, and I showed them a very classic, well-known picture 
where if you take, say, 100, I'm just making this up, say, take 100 companies and you rank them in quintiles, so from top to bottom, and then you follow those cohorts, the highest returns on capital, let's say specifically to lowest returns on capital, and you follow those cohorts over time, what you'll see is the high return on capital returns go down and the low ones go up, right, which is exactly what reversion to the mean would, would indicate. So I show that slide and everyone sort of, you know, amen and, and high five and I'll get that, right? But then I flipped the data and I started with 2014 and I went backwards. So it went from 2014 back to 2005. And again, what you do is you rank the companies on 2014 return on capital, again, highest to lowest, and then you follow those cohorts back in time, right? And what you find is the same picture. Right. So it's clear, That's for wild. example, that competition, you know, so you say, why would returns on capital go down over time? And the answer, you know, the classic answer in economics is competition. Right. So, you know, if you're earning really high returns, maybe I'll come in and try to take part of your business away. That makes total sense. But clearly competition can't work backward. Right. So, so it's the same idea that it's, it's flummoxing. Right. Because competition is such a satisfactory answer as to why returns go down or, you know. But it doesn't really explain what we're after. Only partially explains what we're after. It's a really interesting, a really interesting point. And I think the that you know the mind invents sort of the reasons why it's happening. I mean, often it's just a statistical artifact. Yeah, and that's you know that's the work, um, and that's another thing I would recommend. I find this to be almost infinitely fascinating. But the work by Michael Gazaniga, who is famous for his work on split brain patients. So these are people that have suffered, you know, uh, typically epilepsy, and they have, the, you know, to address these severe seizures, they sever the corpus callosum, the bundle of nerves between the two hemispheres of the brain. And what that opened up for, for Gazaniga and Roger Sperry before him was this opportunity to study modularity of the brain. And what, what Gazaniga found was in the left hemisphere, where, where our language resides for most people, that there's a module they've now dubbed the interpreter. And the primary job of the interpreter is to find causes for every effect. So it's a sort of cause and effect closing machine. And uh, to your point, I mean, often in life, cause and effect are clear. You know, you, break, you throw the rock at the window and it smashes. That's cause and effect, right? But the point is that if there's randomness, there's luck, going back to your coin tossing example, there's some sort of stochastic process, you, your mind is just going to make up a cause fabricated, right? Because it wants to close the cause and effect loop. And what Gazanica was able to show so brilliantly and so poignantly is that uh, with these experiments through these split brain patients, they could they could really isolate where this is happening and, and come up with these really fascinating results. And, you know, Gazanica wrote a book last year and he, he makes this point where quite powerful, where he sort of makes this claim that he thinks that that module, that cause and effect connection is the thing that is uh, that distinguishes humans from other species most fundamentally, which is really interesting if it's true. So I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind, too, is that our minds are constantly closing the cause and effect loops, and uh, it's not above any of us. We all do it, and we just have to be very, very mindful of the stories that we're telling ourselves because sometimes they're true and sometimes they're not. And uh... – and I don't know the specifics of those studies, but essentially what they were doing, you know, they had them like open a door or something like that. And then the the other hemisphere of the brain would invent a reason why they had done it or something, right? Yeah, totally. Exactly. So, I mean, there are lots of different examples. They would show pictures or whatever it is. But, you know, one simple example, yeah, it'd be something just like that. They would say, uh, that, you know, they would flash some words to the left visual field, right? It goes to the right hemisphere. Like something will say, like, you know, the patient sitting down will say, stand up. So the left visual hemisphere sees it, the right hemisphere connects, the patient stands up, right? 
So what's interesting, of course, the left hemisphere, I mean, the person knows that they're standing up, they have no access to that cue, but now the researcher will say, you know, patient, why are you standing up? And the, the reason that your research is almost humorous is because these people would fabricate these sort of elaborate, crazy stories, you know, my left knee is sore and I want to stretch or something like that, right? They would fabricate something that would be sort of hold the whole thing together, but obviously it was completely contrived. And, you know, so that's, you know, again, you get like these chuckles as you see these things that these people are saying, but uh, the more serious and fundamental point is that we're all doing it all the time and we're just not mindful of it, right? So this is just shining a spotlight on something that we're all doing all the time, right? So that's, it's, a, it's a really hard thing to do, but it's just it's discipline to say, am I, creating a, am I fabricating a narrative here? Or if this is a luck-laden activity or a luck-laden field, am I simply just capturing luck here and, and I'm making up a story to try to make for a cohesive world? I think that's the critical point is that just because it's happening in the research, but the reality is it's happening every single day to every, everyone who's listening to this podcast and both of us. <laughs> Precisely. Absolutely. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I think that's a good segue into kind of the idea of cognitive biases. And I, you know, I know that's something you're very knowledgeable about. What are some of the most insidious or even some of the most common cognitive biases that you see people suffering from and maybe specifically in the context of investing or even broadly? Yeah. So, um, so there are really two things that I would mention in investing. There are many more. One of them, which is extremely difficult to sidestep is confirmation bias. Right, and this is this idea that even if you struggle to make a decision, let's say, you know, buy an investment, buy a stock or what have you, even if you sort of struggled to come to that conclusion, once you've made a decision, we all have a natural tendency to seek information that confirms our point of view and to dismiss or disavow or discount disconfirming points of view. And um, one of the things we've learned, you know, certainly and I think a lot of what we've been seeing in computer science the last 25 or 30 years has been st strongly reinforcing, 
is this idea of updating information as new information comes in. So you, it's, you know, Bayes' theorem. So you have a prior, you have a point of view of how the world works. New information comes in. And really, uh, if you're doing your job properly, you should be updating your view, up, updating your prior given this new information. And uh, unfortunately, the confirmation bias is this sort of huge brick wall that prevents new information from finding its way into your mind or finding its way into your decision making. So that's, that, I think that's the first one that's a really big one. The second one is, uh, is probably overconfidence. And, you know, this is very trivial to demonstrate if you get a group of people that people tend to be very overconfident about topics that are a little bit away from their own bailiwick, right? So if I give you questions that you know a lot about, you'll do fine. But things that are just a little bit on the margin from that, you'll, you'll tend to be overconfident. And the way that tends to manifest in, in an investing setting for sure is people tend to project ranges of outcomes that are too narrow. In other words, they think they understand the future better than they actually do, and they fail to consider possibilities, whether they're really good possibilities or really bad possibilities. And that's, I think, the sort of the more the, the pernicious component of overconfidence. So those are two that come to mind. But boy, you know, things like we could go on and on, right? Loss aversion. So we suffer losses more than we enjoy comparable size gains. That's a really big one that looms large in a lot of our decisions. So there's a long list of them. But those two probably, um, confirmation bias and overconfidence are probably the, the, the one, two that I would list first. And what do you think are some ways that people can kind of combat each of those? So, I mean, confirmation bias is just really the key is to be as open-minded as possible Jonathan Barron at University of Pennsylvania has got this just beautiful phrase where he calls it actively open-minded and this idea of really, truly trying to be as open as you can to uh, new information, new input. And the second thing, I think it's very few people are, are going to be formal about doing something like Bayes' theorem, but understanding the concept behind Bayes' theorem, which is you have a point of view, new information comes in, are you revising your view both directionally the correct amount and uh, the magnitude of the correct amount. So that you know, those would be some some ways to try to do that. Overconfidence. The key is to just, and we can go back to our discussion a moment, a few moments ago about base rates, is just to continue to compel yourself to think about alternatives. Right. Um, I'll give you one example that's a very simple one. I, I joke with my students at Columbia Business School, often when there are stock recommendations, you know, uh, you see someone on CNBC or something or they recommend a stock for purchase, they'll often say, well, the upside is 30% and the downside is 10%, right? Something like that, right? So it sounds like three to one, pretty good, right? But if you think about just statistically for a moment, you know, the standard deviation of the stock market, right? So how fat the bell shape is of the distribution of returns is about 20% standard deviation, in the last 85 years or so. So and that's a diversified portfolio, of course. So the standard deviation of an individual stock is going to be higher than that. Let me just pick 30% just to make the numbers easy. So, so the average stock, let's say, roughly speaking, would be up about 10% mean return average with a 30 standard deviation, right? So just translate that into statistics. That would say that about 68% of the time, it's going to be between up 40%, right, 10%, mean plus a 30 standard deviation to down 20%, right? So 10% mean minus 30%. So 40 to minus 20, right? So I just joked about this 10 to 30%, 30% upside, 10% down. You know, just one standard deviation is wider than the most analysts are willing to uh, accept. And certainly go out on two standard deviations, it's vastly wider. So it's just imposing this discipline on yourself to understand what the underlying distributions look like and to recognize and try to think about 
having ranges of the future that are wide enough. Um, and then there are other techniques which we could talk about. And I think you, you probably have covered some of these in some of your prior podcasts, but things like pre-mortems, right? So these sort of structured ways to get people to think about different points of view are, are also some nice techniques to allow to do that. Um, you know, we actually use pre-mortems in our business, but it's not something that I've talked about at all in the podcast. I'd love for you to kind of extrapolate on that concept. Sure. I mean, so most people know about postmortems, right? So in other words, the patient has died or some, something adverse has happened to the patient, and we sit around as a medical community and say, given the facts we had at the time in our technology, what could we or should we have done differently to get to a better outcome. And we're also very familiar with, you know, scenario forecasting. So we sit here in the present, we peer into the future and say, here are the possibilities we should consider as we make a decision. Um, a pre-mortem, as you've already sort of gathered from the name, is a very different exercise. It, it actually effectively launches yourself into the future and you look back to the present. So now it's June, for example, 2017, and we look back to today, June 2016. Uh, this was developed by a social psychologist named Gary Klein, and so, uh, you know, just to give props to him, he's the guy that developed this. And so uh, we could tie together two ideas here. So here's the classic way to do this. You say, let's sit down, you know, we'll meet in, in our conference. I suspect this is what you guys do in your business. And you say, we're going to think about making a particular decision. Let's say it's an investment decision or a business decision to expand or what have you. And what we're going to imagine then, each of us, is that this decision turned out to be a fiasco. Total disaster. We're all embarrassed about it. But now it's June 2017, so it's a year from now. So each of us is going to write a little narrative or write a little 200-word essay about why this decision turned south. And um, it's very important to do it independently, and it's very important to do it from the point of view of the future looking back to today, right? So you might say, so that's, and then you combine the different inputs, and it turns out that that exercise tends to generate substantially more alternatives or scenarios than simply look standing in the present looking to the future. And by the way, is that consistent, Matt, with your own experience in your own company? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so let's tie this back to the idea of the interpreter. You might say, well, hey, I'm looking at scenarios. I'm, you know, I'm thinking about this already. Why is a pre-mortem sort of adding value? And the answer, I believe, is by launching yourself into the future, assuming that this particular outcome has occurred, what that does is it wakes up your interpreter, right? This little module in your brain, you've now given it an effect and you're saying, hey, interpreter, why did this go bad? And the interpreter is like, I'm up to this task and starts generating particular causes for it, right? So in a sense, your scenario planning, standing in the present future, the, the, the thing isn't done, right? So you're not really thinking about causes in a very rich sense. And the second, the pre-mortem, you're basically uh, recruiting your, your interpreter in a sense, to help you understand scenarios more richly. Isn't that cool? So I think that's, that's part of the psychological reason why pre-mortems, I think, can be more effective than simply scenarios. And, you know, my experience is very consistent with yours, that, that organizations that have adopted and embraced pre-mortems tend to report that they have much richer discussions, much, you know, much more heated debates, and, and ultimately probably make better decisions as a consequence of going through the exercise. Another related concept that we've uh, that we've used a number of times is something from the military called a red team. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, absolutely. So we wrote a piece called um, about decision making, and um, we talked about different things. And so we talk about red team, blue team, very specifically. And you know, and well, you you may have mentioned this before, but red team typically is attacker, blue team is defender. I think today 
you know, one of the good, it's from military strategy, of course, but today one great example, very um, relevant example is uh, cybersecurity, right? So you might say, hey, uh, chief technology officer, are we protected from cyber threats? And he or she may say yes, but you might hire a hacker to be your red team, right? So to challenge yourself to see where your vulnerabilities lie. And so red team, and we, by the way, did this my prior job, you know, if we had a, a particular investment that wasn't working out well or a thesis that didn't seem to be unfolding, we actually would do this, um, that you would have half, uh, you'd assign some people to go off and develop the counter case, the devil's advocate case. You'd have people defending the point of view of the firm, and we just let people sit across from each other at a conference room, and everybody else would be judge and jury, and we let them go at it, which was great. Now, I'll tell you the one thing that I learned, a couple things that I would just add on to that. One is that in red team, blue team, I think it's really important to distinguish between facts and opinion. And I think a lot of our discussions in general, by the way, we tend to not distinguish as carefully as we should or could between facts and opinion. So this is a really interesting exercise I'd recommend all the listeners to do if they, if they have a few minutes is to pull out an article, for example, something you either really agree with or something you really disagree with, right? So something that's really polarizing for you. And then um, take two different color highlighters, say blue and yellow, and with one color, highlight what you would deem to be facts, and then another color, what you would deem to be opinion. And then simply step back from the document. And whether you agree with it or disagree with it, try to have a you know, balanced assessment out there whether you're being persuaded or not persuaded by fact or opinion. That's super cool. The second thing I'll mention, which was a new thing for me, is uh, Adam Grant's a great professor at University of uh, Pennsylvania. And he wrote a book called uh, The Originals. And, you know, I don't know if you guys talked about that. He's, you know, there's some stuff on creativity in there as well. Have not. But, but, but Adam talked about Red Team, Blue Team. And he actually made a point that I didn't, under, I didn't appreciate fully um, until I read it. And he said, if you're assigning a Red Team responsibility in your organization, what you want to find is someone who really doesn't believe in the thesis, right? You don't, you don't, want, to, you don't want to just say, hey – can you be the devil's advocate for someone? You, you want someone who actually doesn't believe in the thesis, right? Someone who really is the devil's advocate. And he just says that enriches, enriches the dialogue greatly versus having someone that's sort of a innocent bystander, you know, grab him by the collar and say, go tell us why you, you're against this, right? So that was another little wrinkle that I, I just learned about, which I think could, could add a little value in the process. And another tool that I know you're uh, you're a big advocate of are checklists. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, you know, kind of how important they are and how they can improve decision making. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I was really inspired, and I think many others uh, originally by Atul Gawande's article in the New Yorker, which ended up being a book, um, the checklist checklist manifesto. But the protagonist of that original New Yorker article, and to a large degree, the book is a guy named Peter Pronovost, who's a doctor at Johns Hopkins. And actually, we had a conference a number of years ago where we invited Pronovost to come in. And the story is nothing less than astounding, right, where Pronovost basically um, – and by the way, he had lost his father to a medical error. So he, it was very real and very personal for him, where Pronovost basically introduced a very simple five-step checklist for putting tubes in, intravenous tubes, and found that they could massively reduce infection rates, you know, uh, saved lots of lots of lives, and I think Guande in the, the book argues that you know Pronovost may have saved more lives in the United States than any other person in the last uh, ten years or so. So this sort of um, informs us that you know. And by the way, doctors, if you ask them what 
they need to do before putting a tube in. They know what to do. It's not like their lack of knowledge. It's really a lack of execution, right? And so I think that the point that Guande makes in the book that I think is so powerful is that um, in every field where this has been studied, be it aviation, medicine, construction, um, a faithful, first of all, coming up with a good checklist and a faithful use of the checklist has led to better results. And this is without making the underlying users any smarter or any better trained, right? So it's just hewing to the process more accurately, which is really fascinating, right? So, you know, I think a lot about this in the context of investing. Now, investing is um, a little bit of art and a little bit of science. And I think where the checklists really do apply very effectively is in a lot of the process-oriented stuff. So how to do certain types of calculations, um, basically, it's sort of the fundamental components of investing analysis. Now, they're, they're, the art part comes into uh, some other elements of interpretation. But I would just say if you have components of whatever job you do, and I think almost all of us do have components that are somewhat algorithmic, where consistency and accuracy are really, really helpful, um, you should be uh, thinking about, if you're not doing it already, developing and applying checklists. Um, Guande's book is fantastic. Pronovost, by the way, himself wrote a book uh, about this topic. And maybe the last thing I'll say that came out of Pronovost's book, um, which I think is is very important, is that he said one of the keys to checklist succeeding is actually gathering and analyzing data. In other words, being scientific about this, not sort of uh, you know just this nice idea of having a checklist. And I think that was one of the keys to Pronovost's original wild successes at Johns Hopkins was not just that they developed the proper checklist, but they and they got the doctors to they figured out ways to get the doctors to use it, and then they really kept track of it and gave the doctors feedback. And so this idea of data collection and feedback is also a really really key element to this whole thing. Changing directions a little bit, um, I'd love to dig into some of the stuff you talked about in the success equation, uh, kind of untangling luck from skill and the, the concept of the luck skill continuum. You know, one of the, one of the kind of tools or mental models that you use to describe that phenomenon was the two jars model, which I found to be extremely helpful. I'd love for you to kind of explain that a little bit. Sure. So, you know, and, and by the way, luck skill, the whole topic of the success equation, you know, had been sort of lurking in the shadows for me for many, many years. You know, I, I was a I played sports in college and high school and a sports fan, clearly a big deal in the world of investing. And also, if you look at corporate performance, you know, it's almost everywhere you look, this idea of luck was sort of there, but hard to pin down. And, you know, I read Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Taleb uh, in 2001. That certainly got me uh, thinking more about that. And I think Taleb does an incredibly effective job in that book of sort of underscoring the role of luck, but didn't really do much to help us um, quantify a lot of this. So the cornerstone of the, uh, of the book is what you, as, as you point out, is called the luck skill continuum. And the way to think about this is that uh, you just draw a line and on the far left, you put activities that are pure luck, right? So roulette wheels or lotteries, where really there's no skill whatsoever. And on the far right, you might put uh, pure skill activities and things like, you know, maybe, I don't know if anything's pure skill, but running races or, or, you know, chess is probably over there. And then just thinking about arraying activities between those two extremes. So, you know, where does a basketball game fit on that? Where does bowling, you know, whatever it is, right? So that in and of itself, the methodological approaches to trying to do that was really, really interesting. 
But as I got into this, I, as you point out, I, I was trying to think about conceptualize the so-called two-jar model. So the idea is that your outcome for whatever activity is going to be the result of drawing a number from a jar filled with numbers for, for skill and then drawing a number from a jar that's got luck, right? So you're going to pull two numbers out, add them together, and that'll be, that'll be your outcome. Now, if you're on the pure luck side of the continuum, for example, you'll have a luck distribution. You can envision it as a bell-shaped distribution. is fine. And your skill jar is filled with zeros, right? So only luck will make a difference. If it's on the pure skill side, you know, you have a skill distribution and you're drawing zeros from luck, so only skill matters. And, but almost everything in life is sort of this rich, these two rich uh, distributions colliding with one another. And the question is, you know, how much is each, uh, each contributing? So I just think that's, and, and by the way, one of the really nice things about the two-jar model is it allows us to understand, I think to some degree, things like reversion to the mean, which we spoke about before. It allows us to appreciate the fact that great outliers, for example, streaks in sports of consecutive hits in a baseball game or consecutive shots made by a basketball player are always, and almost by def definition, going to combine great skill and great luck. Because if you think about it for a second, that has to be true, right? Not all skillful players have the streaks in sports, but all the streaks are held by skillful players, right? Because skill is the prerequisite and luck comes on top. So, so to me, it's just a very, very vibrant way to think about a lot of things in life. And, you know, the key point of the success equation is not just thinking about these topics, but hopefully uh, providing some people with some ways to think about the concrete, how they have to deal with the world differently, concretely as a consequence of, of understanding the role of luck. And one of the things that, uh, that I'm really fascinated with is the concept of deliberate practice. And, and you touch on that and kind of how it relates to and applies, you know, more specifically in sort of skill-dominated systems. Uh, but I'm curious, you know, how would you think about applying something like deliberate practice or maybe the core lessons behind deliberate practice to a field like investing or business or entrepreneurship? Yeah, super interesting. And so deliberate practice, you know, I don't know if you've, um, you know, there's a brand new book about by Anders Ericsson called Peak on this. So have Anders, not heard of it. Oh, oh, okay, that. yeah, check it out. So Anders Ericsson just wrote a book called Peak, just as it sounds, uh, which I just read a couple weeks ago. So that is uh, his, you know, talking about deliberate practice. And let's just, just to reiterate for all the listeners, deliberate practice idea of practicing that uh, is at the cusp of your ability. So, you know, sort of be let a little bit at or right beyond your ability, often where you have a teacher or a coach, so someone who can give you instruction and uh, you're getting quality feedback, right? So you're, you're, you're improving at the cusp of your skill uh, level. So as he points out, a lot of us practice things or we do things, let's say we practice, we do things over and over or even we practice, but we don't really satisfy the requirements of deliberate practice, right? It's usually not beyond our, or at the edge of our capability. We often don't have coaches. We often don't get the quality feedback. And as, as Erickson expresses it, well, you know, uh, deliberate practice is not a whole lot of fun. Right, it's actually very tiring because you're constantly pressing yourself. So um, we, I wrote a piece about this actual topic of deliberate practice in 10,000 hours back in 2004. It became before Gladwell's book and so forth. And I struggled. I've struggled since that moment of writing that piece about what deliberate practice means. What is this idea of working beyond our boundaries and getting feedback and so forth? So I don't know that there's a perfectly good example of that. Um, so maybe I can make two points. One is what I argued in the success equation is skill improvement or skill development 
through deliberate practice is absolutely valid in fields where your output is a accurate reflection of your skill. So what kinds of things would that be true? It'd be, you know, music, right? If you're a musician, athletics, it would be true. Chess playing, it'd be true, right? So there's certain fields where the output is an accurate indicator skill. There's, you're mostly, there's very little luck that's filtering out the outcomes, right? So that's where deliberate practice really is good. As you slide over to the luck side of the continuum, what happens is the connection between your skill and the output outcome is, uh, is colored greatly by luck. So for the example I give Matt that's a trivial one is, you know, if you're a blackjack player and you enjoy playing blackjack and you go to, you know, uh, Atlantic City, you know, you may, you may play properly with standard strategy and lose badly for a few hands, or you may play very foolishly and win for a few hands, right? So this connection between your skill and the outcome are broken. And when that's the case, what I argue is you should focus almost exclusively on process. And process, I think it's got elements of deliberate practice, but process is going to have three typical, three components, as I would argue for it. One is an analytical component. Um, that is both, you know, trying to find situations where you have an advantage and also how do you bet given your advantage. I'm going to call the second component behavioral. And this covers a lot of what we've been talking about today. But, you know, are you aware of managing and mitigating the behavioral biases that we all fall prey to? And the third I'm going to call organizational, which is we all work for companies or parts of organizations or parts of teams. None of them per are perfect. Agency costs can be a very big deal. What are we all doing collectively to, to minimize age, those organizational drags, right? So to me, it becomes very process-oriented. And I think if you look at the elite performers, whether it is in sports betting or even sports team management or investing, you get a very common thread that those folks are almost always and almost exclusively focused on process in the faith, the full faith that a good process leads to good outcomes over time. I think that's, that's great advice. And that's something that I've struggled with a lot is kind of how to you know reconcile that or how to deal with uh, the challenge of getting whether it's accurate feedback or whatever else it might be in systems where there's a, a very fuzzy relationship between skill and outcome exactly so you've touched on this a little bit but uh you know if you had to kind of distill it what would one piece of homework be that you would give to the listeners of this episode Read. <laughs> Read is probably the main thing is to, is to uh, and, I, and I actually say that I, I think you, you know, working with people like you or following people like you is a great place to help curate some, some of the stuff. But I, I think it probably helps to have some thoughtful people. Shane Parrish, you mentioned, who's fantastic. And He's great. Shane's another guy who can help you cur curate that stuff. But um, I, think, I think starting to just uh, making sure that you commit a substantial percent of your day to learning, continual learning, and again, being diverse in what you're reading and thinking about, and forcing yourself, compelling yourself to have this stance of being actively open-minded. So making sure that you're considering different points of view, you're exposing yourself to different types of people. Um, so that, that may be not, that's maybe a tall order, but to, to me, that would be the first thing I would say. And you know, I do, I do find a lot of people struggle to find time, or at least they perceive they struggle to find time to read. And the main thing I would just say is that life is about trade-offs. So the question is, are, are there things that you're doing today in your you know, moment to moment that you could trade off, that you could do less of, that would allow you to do more, to, more reading? Because I do think the return on investment is really, really, the return on time and return on investment is really high for reading. 
You know, there's a there's a really funny study that Zig Ziglar talks about in some of his old speeches, and I think the study was was in like the 50s or 60s. But they basically looked at uh, they looked at a factory, and they started with everybody from the factory workers up to the line managers, up to the office managers, up to like the president. And they looked at how many hours a week they each spent watching TV. <laughs> and there was sort of a relationship where, you know, it was like the factory worker spent 20 hours a week watching TV all the way up to where the, you know, the president spent like half an hour a week watching TV or something. So it, it, that's a great point is that there's always a way to find time to read if you make it a priority. That's right. Exactly. And, you know, I love that. And Again, it's maybe not everybody's cup of tea, but I, if you're if for for people who are probably listening to this, it is going to be something that they'll find interesting, and, and I would just jump in. And I and by the other thing, I would also encourage, especially for young people, it's a great thing to get going on. Is is you can when you can work it into your habits when you're young, it's just a huge leg up for for through the years for sure. Um, and we, I mean, obviously, you're a very active reader. What do you have any kind of methodology that you use to keep track of all of your kind of book notes or to keep uh, you know, to sort of categorize everything that you've read and all the knowledge that you've accumulated. <laughs> so, Matt, I wish I had a good answer to this question. The answer is is, is no, um, not so much. But um, I, I guess struggle I, with that too. That's why I'm asking for I, myself in this case. But I benefit for a couple from a couple things, which are sort of offshoots of my the way my career works. Right. So, I have uh, the fortune of being able to write a fair bit for my job, and not not just book stuff, but just day to day stuff. And so. That allows me to weave in a lot of the stuff that I read and implement it. And I think um, teaching and writing are two really powerful mechanisms to help um, consolidate thinking and consolidate ideas. So that helps a lot. And um, and beyond that, it's just now a lot of it is cumulative, right? So it's, it's just trying to make sure that whatever I'm reading clicks into place. I mentioned this Anders Ericsson book, and you know I've been reading about I, – I, I think I have probably a half dozen books or more on expertise. Many of them were edited by Anderson, Anders Ericsson. So, so that, it's, that was just adding on to something that I had a little bit of a foundation in. So yeah, I, there's not much method to my madness, but I'm not sure that – yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think just jumping in is probably the first and foremost thing to do. Where can people find you and uh, some of your works online? So probably the easiest thing to do is uh, go to michaelmobison.com. So that's a website that mostly highlights uh, the books that you mentioned at the outset. The Success Equation, our Skill Look book, also has its own website, which is success-equation.com. Um, success-equation.com is also kind of fun because there are some interesting little simulations that you can play around with, including the two-jar model you talked about. There's also some fun stuff on the Curdle Blotto game, which is a, a game theory model, and uh, a little mind reader algorithm. So there's some fun things to do there as well. And then um, it's harder. My professional writing is difficult to get access to through formal channels, but um, if you've got some fingers in Google... Uh, you, t- you tend to find a lot of the stuff out there, so <laughs> I'll just Google it. <laughs> uh, and I think ValueWalk.com has a great list of a lot yeah. of your yeah. A lot so of ValueWalk is a good example, yeah, exactly. And Hurricane Capital's done a great job. So a couple of these sites, those guys do a nice job of um, recapturing a lot of the stuff we do. Uh, well, Michael, thank you so much for being on the Science of Success. Uh, it's been great to have you, and it's been an enlightening conversation. Matt, it's been my pleasure the whole time. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are what make this podcast possible. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. Every single review, 
every single subscription helps us move up in the ranks and the podcast reach more people and spread our message to help more people. Lastly, as a thank you to you for being awesome, I'm giving away a $100 Amazon gift card. All you have to do to enter to win is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Again, that's SMARTER to 44222. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 